0: wrapping up our 10 Guardians series. We're going to be doing part 10 here today. Uh, we did the first couple of parts and then we took a break uh, for some timely messages uh, during you know, some of our COVID season here. And now we've gone back and we're completing the series. So I get to wrap things up and we're going to be talking about commandment number 10. And again, we're calling the series the 10 Guardians uh, because in general uh, we as human beings have a tendency maybe to resist a little bit when we hear we've been commanded right I mean come on how much of a difference is it if somebody you know your your wife or you know ladies your husband you know says uh, uh, would you make dinner please versus I command you make me dinner right it's going to go two totally different ways you know now when it comes to God 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 is God, and God can command. But the the point we're trying to drive home uh, in this series by calling them the Ten Guardians is recognizing when God put all these things in place, it's because he loves us, and it's because he knows what we need, he knows what's healthy, he knows what's going to be healthy for us as individuals, as families, as neighborhoods, as communities, and as countries, and and, and around the globe. Uh, The Word of God does tell us, doesn't it, that uh, blessed are those whose God is the Lord. Those nations who, who say God is Lord and we want to do it your way, there's going to be blessing. And so the, the boundary stone comes into the picture because it's, it's all over the word of God. There's different, different places and references where it says don't move an ancient boundary stone. And again, it would be you know, uh, relegating off where property begins and ends. It relegates off uh, wh- where somebody could have free right to move about and where it wasn't their, uh, their right or their place or their privilege to move about. So again, this picture that God put these anchors in place. And how many know He is the same yesterday, today, and forever? So these precepts and these principles. Now, although we're in the New Testament, we're not under the law anymore. Because Jesus came, we're not under the law. He fulfilled the law. But it doesn't mean these principles and that these truths change. They, they just are worked out in our life out of our walk with God in our devotion to Christ. So with that just kind of pulling us back into the context, let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. We're going to look at the 10th commandment. Uh, So it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, hey, let's just have a moment. If you're watching a live stream, you know, feel free to type in the box. Uh, Yeah, that's me. I've done that. But in, in in the room here, by show of hands, how many have ever said something like this? Only if I had, and then fill in the blank, then... Everything would be better, or things would be good, or things would be the way they're supposed to be. You know, you can, you can fill in the blank there, right? right? We've, we've all at one point in our life have said, oh, if only I had this, then, then the world would be a better place. Uh, Alyssa Morgan, the former president of Mops International, that's mothers of preschoolers, she shares this insight into how a child views the world, and it very much serves as a good illustration for us talking about coveting here today. It's the toddler's creed. And here it goes. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else no matter what. If you are building something uh, and with all the pieces, them together, they're mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. But if it's broken, it's yours, right? The toddler's creed. You know, cute for a toddler, not so cute when we see, uh, you, you know, uh, our sinfulness as people. Now, interesting, right? When we look at these Ten Commandments, let's, let's acknowledge a couple of interesting things here. First of all, the, the Sixth, the Seventh, and the Eighth Commandments forbid us to injure our neighbor in deed, in action, The ninth commandment, that Pastor Walt hit that last week, forbids us to injure him in word. And now the tenth here today forbids us to injure in thought, in our heart, right? Coveting always starts in the heart. While the principle of putting God first, let's think about this, the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, you know, put him first, have no other gods before him. The principle of putting God first supplies the motivation, for obeying the other nine commands, doesn't it, right? I mean, we start off with, hey, if I love God, I want to walk out all these things he called me to walk out. Well, on the flip side, the 10th principle of not coveting supplies the explanation on why we will disobey all the others. Interesting, huh? So let's talk a little bit on what is covetousness. You know, Abraham Lincoln, it was said that he was walking down the street one day uh, with his two young sons, both of whom were crying, and the passerby asked, well, what's the matter with your boys? And Abraham Lincoln replied, exactly what is wrong with the world. I have three walnuts, and each boy wants two. You know, covetousness. I want more. I've got to have more. And if I can't have more on my own, I'll have more of yours, kind of a thing. Uh, in the book, the day America told the truth, 25% of those surveyed, this is pretty staggering, said they would abandon their families for $10 million. Wow, huh? Talk about covetousness, right? Coveting will, will move somebody into making very unwise choices. It, it's staggering. It even goes on to say 23% said they would become prostitutes for $10 million. So, wow, covetousness. The Nelson Bible Dictionary defines it this way. It's an intense desire to possess something uh, that, doesn't belong, uh, that, that belongs to another person, something that's not yours. It uh, means to desire greatly to lust after that which cannot be legitimately ours. So, you know, in the relationship that department, that could be somebody's spouse, that could be somebody's friend, that could be somebody else's business partner. There's all different ways, so it's not just pr- property per se and belongings, it can be relationships as well. So basically, covetousness, uh, one commentator said, it's the worship of self, for it pledges all of one's energies to self-gratification. And now coveting then, as we're looking at this, it's a root of sin, which is often the cause of other sins. That's why we said in looking at the Ten Commandments, the first kind of sets us up for motivation to follow the rest, and the tenth kind of reveals to us the way that the thing that paves the way for us not doing the other, other ones as we go backward from there. But Colossians 3, 5, uh, 3 verse 5 says, So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity. Lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So Paul equates coveting with idolatry. Going back to what I said, it's 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 about uh, kind of like worship of self. In the book of Joshua the children of Israel are going into the promised land, and they're getting ready now. They're going to have to battle and war for the land, and the very first battle they have is with the city of Jericho, and it is the most fortified, the, the most militarily difficult city for them to take and conquer. God starts them right off with the most difficult task that they're going to have, and God brings this incredible miracle, and the walls of Jericho fall, and they get the city. Right after that is the city of Ai, and now this is almost like the polar opposite of what Jericho was. Only God gives a command and he says, don't covet anything in the city. You're not to take anything. None of it's yours. And we read in Joshua 721, Achan, uh, an individual who was part of the the battle that happened to Israel, they have a really big defeat because Achan covets and he sins, uh, there, there was uh, some, some uh, money that was in there, some gold, and some, uh, some I guess, valuable clothing that he wanted, he coveted. He says, I coveted them in verse 21, and I took them. So hey, little side note here, not the, not the full topic for today, but have you ever thought, well, hey, my sin isn't hurting anybody else? Have you ever heard anybody say, well, my sin isn't hurting anybody else? How I many know that's absolutely not true? Here it is, Achan is thinking, well, I'll just do this, it's between me and God, however he justified it, and actually affected, you know, the world around him, uh, and and whether or not Israel prospered in that battle. So the 10th commandment here deals with our inner heart attitude, and so the thing about that is uh, sin beginning in the heart, uh, we can covet without anybody knowing that we're coveting. Jesus in the New Testament here now in Luke twelve fifteen he gives a sober, sober warning against greed and thinking that we always need more than we already have. He says it this way, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the danger for us is, you know, in Western culture in particular, in America in particular, is we have a culture that is just constantly, constantly trying to foster coveting in our lives, right? It's letting us know, you've got to have it. You know, how many have ever come home from the store with a gadget or, 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 or a product that you never used, but there was just something about, you saw it advertised on TV, somebody else talked about it, or you just plain walked by it and you thought, I, just, I need one of those. You know? And you went ahead and, and, and you say, man, it's just this, this wanting another, another thing. I have to have more. You know. So the, the remedy, one of the ways to push back here, First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So, wow, the world tells us all these, these formulas of success. The world tells us what definitions of success are. If we were to do a man-on-the-street video and interview people, go down by the, by the shore where people are, are hanging out and ask them, so, you know, what is, what is wealth? What are riches? What is gain? What is success? We'd get all kinds of answers, and, and many of them would have to do with material possessions. And yet God lets us in right here, and he says, you want to talk about wealth? You want to talk about getting great gain? It's godliness with contentment. Wow, what a great picture for us to have. So talking about covetousness now, let's move down to what is the root underlying coveting? And let's acknowledge it's this, discontentment. To be discontent is is going to make us vulnerable for coveting. Discontentment makes the grass look greener. Right, we've all heard that phrase, have you ever had a situation where the grass looked greener? Maybe another job, you know, uh, just, just a, a different life circumstance only to find out the grass actually wasn't a whole lot greener on the other side? Come on, wave at me if you've ever had that happen. Oh man, I thought there was green grass, there's not even grass over there, never mind green grass. You know, wow, I just saw it the wrong way. But discontentment can be a, a rough thing, it can cause spouses uh, as they get discontent with each other to divorce. Children who get discontent with their parents, maybe they move away before they're ready to do that and they they get into a difficult situation. Congregation members in a church get discontent with their church family, with their pastors and and they wind up going to another church. Maybe somebody leaves work or a business, you know, and says, hey, it's going to be better over here. But I love this quote, we think the grass is greener on the other side, but many times instead of landing on the greener side, we go from the frying pan into the fire. And so, as we talk about discontentment being a root of coveting, let's, let's look at a couple of different ways that we can be discontent. And, and my, my prayer for us is that we would then have a guard, and understanding, you know, be watchful for these things if they should come our way. So, so, I'm going to talk about three. The first one is the constant craving for something that we don't have. Just a constant craving for something we don't have. How many have ever said, man, if I just get to hear only to get to here with this, and you say, well, now, now really, oh, I thought, thought that would have been good, but now I need to get to here. You know, I've heard people in the business arena, man, I thought when I made my first you put the dollar sign, my first X amount of dollars, that man, everything would be good, but when I got there, I realized, no, I needed to make the next amount of dollars, I needed to make the next amount, and, the, and, and so forth, and it became this thing of just uh, constantly craving for something that we don't have. Adam and Eve craved for the taste of the forbidden fruit. Think about it, right? When we go back to the context in the word of God, God said, you can eat of everything, everything, say everything, Everything. but one tree. And it was, you know, the the, the manipulation of the enemy and and the coveting that came along. No, I got to have that one thing that I can't have. David craved the company of someone else's wife. Even though the Lord had given him a wife and and riches and and all, all these great blessings were bestowed upon him. How about King Ahab with Naboth's vineyard? I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but King Ahab, he was a wicked king. He was married to Jezebel, who was a wicked, wicked queen. And he saw Naboth's vineyard and he thought, I'd love that property. I want that for myself. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, sell it to me. And, they, they, you know, back in, in those times, particularly in Israel, this was about family heritage. This was about the honor of his family and his family name. And he's like, this, it would be unrighteous for me to sell this to you, king. I can't. And so what does the king do as a real stand-up guy? He goes back to his house and he pulls a tantrum and he pouts. And now the wicked queen comes in and says, what are you pouting over? And, you know, you can almost imagine. It. When I read it and I hear, I hear uh, Ahab talking, I hear it in this voice. You know, just hearing Satan, Naboth wouldn't sell me his vineyard, and I want it really bad. You know, but it's crazy what happens. His wife goes out and has Naboth falsely accused. You talk about the the commandments. I mean, she went through the laundry list there and and busted most of them and killed the man because uh, there was coveting, constantly wanting something we don't have. You know, here he is. He's the king of Israel, all kinds of might and power, but he's got to have this one thing that he can't have, Right coveting is what we're talking about so so that's that that's one of the ways that discontentment can come second one is when there's comparison with others and again a powerful story as we look at Israel's history in first Samuel chapter 8 God says to Israel we're going to do something special we're not going to do this like the rest of the world God says I'm going to be your king I'm going to lead you you know, and the world is going to get to see what it looks like to be God's people. But the children of Israel wouldn't have it. And and they go to Samuel and they say, hey, go to God and, and tell God we want a king. If we go into verses 19 to 22 uh, and 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 just before this, to set this up a little bit, Samuel is explaining you don't know what it's like to be under a king. Like, yeah, the king goes out with the army and fights the battles, but it's your sons. He's going to recruit into the in, in, into the, the battle, into the army. And all of the finest of the land uh, it's going to wind up going to the king. There's there's a big price tag for this, and this isn't God's best for you. He's called you for something better. But it goes on, and it says in verse 19, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, We want a king over us. Listen, then we will be like all the other nations, like a, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, He repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them, and give them a king. So here's the second area of discontent. It's comparison with others. How many know God has called you to be you? He hasn't called you to be somebody else. And again, our culture just fosters and feeds this in us. But nobody else can be you. You are uniquely crafted, knit together by God himself in your mother's womb one of a kind no one else on the planet like you and the only comparison that I need to make that you need to make is against the best you that God put inside you and that he called you to be right so there can be a discontentment I don't want to stay where I am I want to grow I want to steward this life that God gave me but I don't have to try to be somebody else well I tell you what when we get hold of that that'll set us free now we're not living a life of this, this, this uh, competition trap that we can get in. And not only that, gauging ourselves, well, at least I'm above this one or at least I'm better than this one, that turns into Pharisee thinking and, and all kinds of ugly stuff. But instead realizing it's not a competition versus anybody else. It's about, God, who is it that you've called me to be? And let me run hard after that. Amen? And then, and then a third root of discontentment. And we've said discontentment is a root of coveting, is comparing our present conditions with our past glory. So let's look in Numbers 11, verses 4 to 6. It says, now the mixed multitude. So let me me set this up. This is God's people delivered from bondage, delivered from slavery, called out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. But God's got them in a bit of a boot camp. He's showing them how to trust him. He's showing them how to not be moved by what they see, but to walk by faith. And, and, and they're, they're not doing well with it. And it says here in verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up, and there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So let's pause for a second there. There's nothing but this supernatural bread that God is dropping on us every day to supernaturally sustain us in the wilderness. That's all we've got. And and amazing how they've so put on rose-colored glasses, they don't remember the, the, the generations of crying out, deliver us, God, deliver us, God, deliver us but instead they're crying out and saying, hey, at least when we were in slavery, we had this, we had this. So what do we call that in modern terms? Glory days thinking, All right? I have a relative who, who, you know, when they're in the middle of now, now stinks. But go five years down the road and looking back and they're saying, now stinks. It's not like five years ago. And I want to remind them, you said it stunk five years ago. When did it get good? You know that 's glory day 's thinking that 's looking back you know um, with, with a disdain for now rather than seeing how many know god 's in the now we can 't change yesterday, and if we walk now outright, the future's going to be okay because we 're walking it with god right so so here 's a, a couple of things, three things that we 've looked at that that will foster discontent uh, so let, let me now at this point let 's make some. Balancing statements, because I don't want you to misunderstand. Hey, you know, Jim, are you saying that, you know, so contentment is, you know, if uh, there's an intense war going on and God's blessings aren't going on in my life, that I'm just supposed to be content and, and just let it happen. And if God wants to change it, like uh, just sort of this passive thing, everybody say, no way. No way. That, that's not what we're saying. So what coveting isn't, let's talk about that for a moment. It's not settling for less than what God has promised. You're not well? God promised wellness. You stay discontent and you walk in faith until wellness is yours, until it's in your hands. Amen? We we do not settle for less than what God promised. And then settling for less than our potential in Christ. We don't want to do that either. We don't want to be content with staying where we are, right? Paul talks about pressing on toward that high calling, you know, to win that prize in Christ Jesus. So it's important that we keep on from faith to faith and from glory to glory. We're to be good stewards. And to steward something is to say, hey, Lord, you gave me this. I stewarded it. And now it bloomed and it grew. By the way, what is the greatest investment that we can make to steward our lives that will bring the greatest return? Anything we can pour into somebody else. Because it's the one investment that's eternal. So when we look at stewarding our lives, it's going to translate into, so Lord, how can I pour in some way into another person? God's placed in us the capacity to dream, you know, to grow, to improve. Uh, Hoping for better things by itself is not discontentment. Jesus uh, several times asked the disciples to look forward to better things. So what is it then? What, is dis- what makes it discontentment? When we are bitter about the present and we complain about the present while coveting for something else. Did you catch it? So that's what moves it into a place of discontent. So hey, as we start to come in for a landing here, so how can we find contentment? How can we practice and walk in it? Let's look at a couple of verses that'll give us some great wisdom. Hebrews 13, five and six. Let your conduct Be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Can you say amen? So our conduct without covetousness means we're living a lifestyle in a way. So let's say we're we're walking through COVID-19 season. And we have these things, and we're praying and asking God to move and God to change things. We're in a place of faith. We're expecting God to work, but we have a contentment in him that he's in control in the meantime. So we walk through in godliness. How do we know what's godliness and what's not godliness? We're going to be walking after his way. It's not going to be muddy. It's not going to be gray. It's going to be pretty clear when we walk in this, this kind of contentment, letting our conduct be without covetousness, right? Have you ever, like, you know, you see a 20, I, I've had this happen during the COVID-19 season, knowing I can go to the store at any time and get something to eat and never go. And then it's closed, and now I want to go. Can anybody else wave at me and say, yeah, I had that happen, right? That, that's, that's covetousness trying to push up in our lives. Philippians 4, 11 to 13, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So good, huh? Let me talk for a moment here, part of how do we keep covetousness out of our lives. So let me ask a question just rhetorically for you to answer on the, on the inside. When's the last time you told yourself no? No. Right, if we practice telling ourselves no, like, like Paul saying, hey, when I'm hungry and I'm not hungry, when, you know, I've just learned to be content in every situation. But part of that process as we look through scripture is learning that, that, that um, Paul says, I beat my body into submission. You know, he's not talking about physically taking, you know, he's talking about taking his flesh nature and telling it no. You know, so for instance, my wife and I coming home from a, a, a wedding that I got to, be a, 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 to, to officiate yesterday, and we decided we would stop at the, the Wendy's World Outreach Center. And we got fries, and I got me a, a vanilla Frosty. Now, come on, have you ever dipped the fries in the Frosty? Right? If you do that and listen, you will hear angels singing. It's that good. So we thought we'll get fries and, and get a Frosty. I was going from get a frosty to get a frosty. (laughs) And then I was like, you know what? Maybe with the fries, spicy chicken sandwich looks good. And the chili looks good. And the looks good. And the, you you know, and, and so in that moment it was, no, I'm going to tell myself, no. So No, nope, we'll get the, just get the regular frosty, you know. So just practicing in our lifestyle, times where the flesh is saying, I want the big one, just every so often. And I would say more than every so often, it, with some kind of regularity saying, no flesh, you don't reign, you don't rule, you're, you're submitted to the lordship of Christ, right? This could even work in the arena of, I'm really aggravated with so-and-so. Let me stew on that for a while. It's like, nope. no. No, in the name of Jesus, I'm putting that under, I bless them, I forgive them. You know, learning to tell ourselves no is a way of keeping a lifestyle where we can practice what we just read there, you know, that our conduct is with contentment. All right, let's move on and we'll start to wrap here. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So talking about as our lifestyle, our mind is on things above. We won't get wrapped up in materialism. You know, God doesn't say that we have to hate living in this world, but there's a world system. There's, there's, there's a system where the world loves what God hates. And where we're, the world system hates what God loves. Can you say amen? Amen. And we don't want to live so wrapped up in this world that we start to hate what God loves and love what, what, what God hates. And here's a recipe set our hearts and our minds on things above, on Christ. <laughs> it's a cute story. It goes back in the pre-digital age, but I just thought it was kind of adorable, but also really sobering, right? A preacher once dropped by to visit a family of a congregation where he labored. And upon arriving, the mother of the household, wanting to make a good impression, uh, said to her daughter, honey, uh, go and get the good book and bring it for us to look at. You know, and the daughter comes back and brings the Sears catalog. <laughs> because that's what life in the home had taught her was the good book. Now, I know we don't have Sears catalog anymore, but you get the idea of the illustration. There wasn't an enough of hearts and minds set on things above where that little innocent daughter couldn't perceive, oh, she meant the Bible. You know, so again, good point for us to look at. And then finally, for conclusion here, remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we say that a lot of times in the context of offering and finance, but there's a lot more to treasure than finance, isn't there? Our time, our resources, our our passions, you know, our attention and focus, and our finances well, all of that works together. We point those things set on things above, set on the lordship of Christ. Then uh, we are going to be people who live having cast off covetousness, uh, having cast off discontent, and, and being able to see the flag raised when we see it coming up, that red flag in our lives. So as we go to wrap up here, I just thought this would be a great way to wrap up this whole season, you know, of, of looking at God's commands God's precepts, God's principles, and his ways. You know, uh, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. Let's look at Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9. and, And let's even make this a prayer. Could we, this morning, just as I read this out, God, this is my heart toward your ways, toward your precepts, toward your laws. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. What what a beautiful picture of of an understanding. God, I want to know your ways, I want to know your commands. God, they're guardians they're safeguards, they're anchors so that I could live healthy and vibrant. And and so not only so the world can see you, but so that the world can be blessed through your kingdom ways as they're lived out through my life. Can you say amen? So Lord, as we wrap this series up here, uh, Lord, let it be that when it comes to this area of discontentment, Lord, just deliver us from our culture. God, help us to not be products of our culture, but help us to be products of the kingdom. May we be those that set our eyes, set our hearts, set our minds on things above where Christ is seated. So Lord, we just give all of that into your hands. Speak to us, lead us, help us change and shift wherever we need to and be glorified in all of it. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.